This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Diving in headfirst into myth. Speaking of headfirst, um, I... No, my... Mine's gone blank. There's going to be some witty segue. Uh, I can't think of one. Bernard Callow joins us in the studio to talk comic books, as is his wont, once a month with a little segment we call Drawn Out. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Richard Watts. I did bring my head and it, it, it did enter the room first, so yeah, I suppose well, that's perfect. Thank you for <laughs> covering my ass there. Not with your head, though. No. So, comics. Comics, what have you got for us? What exciting well, new developments in the world of comic book sequential visual narrative and graphic art? Have we got? We've got. We've got some good stuff. We've got some good stuff. Um, I would like to uh, t- open today or start today with talking about the Ledger Awards, which are the uh, Australian uh, uh, Comic Book Excellence Awards, uh, and they're not named after the not- kind of accounting book that you would. Used to tally up money in prior Actually, to the internet age. You know, they? nobody has ever has ever pulled out that ledger uh, for me. Uh, no, that's true. It's not like named after. That. Although there is quite a you know, there's tallying obviously that goes on with awards. So there's it's not uh, an un. You know, there is a, there is a there is a ledger in the ledgers, but they're actually named after a, a cartoonist, an Australian cartoonist, um, who um, went overseas and worked on film and did some comic work over in America, and then died uh, very early. Maybe he was forty or forty five when he died, and so they, the, the the awards are named after him. And over the last three or four years, we've had a annual. Uh, ceremony and uh, and awards this... given to the likes of your good self. Well, that's true, Richard. Was I wasn't going to bring it up myself? Well, but... I was. <laughs> so yes, there is a um, as well as the awards for comic books uh, and work in comic books. There's also something called a platinum ledger, which is uh, for a contribution to Australian comics culture. And I uh, received that last year, which was excellent. I went around with a with a glow uh, all all year, which is excellent. Uh, this year, the platinum ledger went to Michael Fakaris, uh, the great Michael Fakaris. Uh, uh, comic book maker, street art maker, uh, uh, experimenter, extremo, and it, just a really uh, 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 an incredible um, stalwart of the scene, particularly in Melbourne. Uh, he's a Melbourne person, um, but his his brand of he also uh, works in theatre quite a bit, you know, and so he's uh, he's yeah he's he's certainly a person around whom uh, many. Um, uh, arms of the comic book scene sort of sort of uh, work, but I'm just going to hand over the Ledger's Annual, which is getting handsomer and handsomer every every year. And the Ledger's Annual is uh, an account of the, the books that have won for that year, which I'm just about to talk about the, the Gold Ledger. Um, but I will direct Richard Watts's attention to the little bookmark that I've stuck in there because there's some nice stuff. So uh, Bruce Mutard, a comic bookmaker, has uh, uh, designed and published the, the annual and he's got a little, for the first time, uh, well, not for the first time, but certainly in a very concentrated way, a anthology section at the back. So you, not only do you get an account in the annual of who won and why, uh, but also you get some, you know, some... Uh, New comics that are that are coming up, so that's very exciting. Um, the Gold Ledger this year was won by Mel Tregoning's Small Things, which was we've talked about in the show maybe six months ago. Uh, it's a wordless comic. Mel uh, is a was a uh, Perth 
based maker and um, she uh, killed herself uh, after completing almost all of Small Things, which is about a, uh, a child at, at a school uh, um, coping with heavy feelings, I suppose is a way of saying it. And then Sean Tan uh, came in to... F- do the very last parts of that artwork, and the book was published by Alan and Unwin. So this is a, is a it really is a remarkable book in, in and of itself, um, and it's uh, very worthy, I think, of the gold ledger. I remember year. our conversations about the, the the work when we spoke about it several months ago, mm. and just the way that these beautiful, evocative black and white illustrations show someone's feelings almost crawling off them and yes. flying off them and, yes. and developing a, a life of their own as someone fragments yeah. before our eyes. And, of course, it's the, the fact that when you're suffering from depression, people can't see you falling apart. Yeah. But that's what it feels like and the, the comic beautifully captures yeah. that sense. So, yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a well-awarded well thing. Um, and... Um, uh, there's a. They also the ledgers are are a great institution, I think, in terms of recognizing what's going on at the moment, but also the history of comics. So there's a, uh, um, a, a ledger of honor was awarded to May Gibbs. Now, of course, we know her as the author of Snuggle Pot and Cuddle Pie, but I did not know that she produced a comic strip called Bib and Bub for 42 years. 42 years. That puts her up amongst, you know, some of the longest running, you know, Peanuts ran for 50 years. So um, that's, you know, uh, that's uh, May Gibbs, the, the great snuggle pot and cuddle pyre um, in, in, in comic book world as Fantastic. well, which is, which is really remarkable. So it's, it's sort of the ledgers retrieve uh, a, a fairly hidden history of comics in Australia and they celebrate what's going on at the moment. So they're excellent. And I did uh, of this some very f- fine comics in the back of the uh, of the ledger, but I did wanted to point out to, to, to Richard the work by Susan Butcher and Carol Woods. They're, um, they're very funny uh, comic strips about uh, uh, art, figures in the art world. Um, and what they do, um, well, what do they do? Well, they, uh, they are pastiching uh, different comic book yeah. artists and styles yeah. to explore the life of Diane Arbus. So, so uh, who, is, is, who is depicted in a sort of Richie Rich uh, style. So it's sort of <laughs> very, very, and what's she called? The upper the class. The upper class, upper crust shutterbug. <laughs> the upper crust shutterbug. And, and then you've got Dushiriko, master of the metaphysical <laughs> arts, referencing the work at Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange, yeah. Uh, so that I'll definitely have to keep yeah. my eye out. That's yeah, that's Butcher and Wood, and they're and they're, and they're hilarious. So that's I, I think this is an uh, this annual is, is very, the awards themselves are an, an important part of Australian comic book culture. But the the annual is a great thing because it really gives you that um, it's a, it's it's a it's an object, it's an artifact of of that year and of a retrieved history. Uh, and the other book, which is fatter, and I'll just oh he heft it over the. Over the uh, over the bench to you, Richard. This is Rolling Blackouts by Sarah Glidden, and continuing the trend we've seen in comics over recent years of uh, essentially doing what photojournalists would be doing, or or the the more traditional newspaper style journalism reportage, but reportage in comic book in form. form. This is yeah. dispatches from Turkey, Syria, and Iraq. So Sarah has her previous book is called How to Understand Israel in Sixty Days. She's an American uh, woman and she that's a previous book. And this one is about a, a 2010 trip to, uh, yeah, as Richard said, Turkey, Iraq and uh, Syria. And really she is 
she, it's, it's an interesting thing. She is a, an embedded journalist with uh, a couple of other journalists, journalists who, who are part of a, a media collective called the, um, uh, the, the Globalist, the Seattle Globalist. And, they, and they're sort of basically independent journalists. They go to places, they uh, make stories, either um, written stories or uh, video stories, uh, and then they sell them. They try and sell them to news outlets. And Sarah goes along with them to report on their reporting, essentially. Uh, but the very interesting thing is so there are two of the Seattle Globalists, there's Sarah Glidden, and then there's Dan, who is an ex-Marine, who was part of the invasion of Iraq. And so what they're dealing with, what the, who they're talking to as they travel through these spaces are really uh, Iraqi refugees who are running, uh, you know, finding... Um, Finding places in Syria, actually, mostly to, to, to hide from the war. And Dan, the ex-Marine, is is sort of confronting the the consequences of the action that he was involved in. So that's a that's a. Uh, I mean, there's the information that one is getting through this book. There's 300 page book in this beautiful style that Sarah Glidden has. Very simple line and wash, uh, color wash style. So uh, it doesn't get in the way of the information. And um, and you're also interested in her because she's 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 working out as she goes what is journalism. And I think that is a question for journalism at the, you know, what is journalism? Absolutely. What is moment. it becoming? And you know? journalism is, is essentially in crisis at the moment, yes. traditional models. So seeing a comic book uh, maker explore not only the question of journalism, but its application as Absolutely. well is Absolutely. really fascinating. So, and I mean, this is a big, thick, chunky, hardcover book. This is... It's 300 pages. Yeah. yeah. And it's out through uh, Drawn and Quarterly, who are an excellent um, uh, uh, Canadian, I think, uh, operation. Um, and just to, just to, to to finish by saying, you know, finally, you know, you know, I'm not a, a great one for the for the superhero comic book, you know, film. It just I, I, leave them on the page, people, leave them on the page. But I went and saw the Wonder Woman film. How great is it? I really enjoyed it. It made me cry at yeah. one, like the, uh, the 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 sequence set in the trenches and in no man's land. Yeah. Uh, it's really intense, but it's it's a really strong film. It's wonderful. It's, I mean, you know, there's some you can get some, there's some bad. Zack Snyder bombast that sort of creeps its way around the corners, but but essentially at its heart, it's it's a it's a wonderful film, and and that woman is magnificent, uh, Gal Gadot. She, and she, the thing that I really enjoyed about it is that this is a uh, a film that gets one of the reasons we love comic books is because yes, comic superheroes kind of punch people and fight and so on, but this is a film in which somebody learns the value of compassion. Yeah. And I think that is a real super superpower. Certainly so, that yeah. certainly that and also a loss of innocence, you know, for her. It just, you know, works as a film, you know. Glad you enjoyed it. Yeah. <laughs> You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. The Art Attack team couldn't join us this week, but not to worry because we've got plenty of visual art to talk about on the program. I'm joined now by Susan Millard, who's going to tell us about Art on the Page, which is an exhibition in the Knollshaw Gallery in the Bailieu Library at the University of Melbourne. Susan, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Richard. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Yes, I've had a couple of coffees. I'm in a oh, fine good. mood. <laughs> and uh, the, the crisp winter air kind of snapped me awake the minute yes. I stepped outside. Yeah. So let's talk about Art on the Page, which is... An exhibition that celebrates the artist book 
Yes. What, what is an artist book? Well, there's many uh, theories about what an artist book is, but um, this particular exhibition is looking at um, so that European tradition of artist books. So people like um, it's really interesting because people like Matisse, Picasso, um, all these sort of artists, Miro did actually did artist books, did books, um, and it was an interesting uh, way for them to explore a different medium. So instead of doing things like gallery on gallery walls, they were looking at the book form and how they could create art on the page, basically. So so when we talk about an artist book, do we uh, are we talking about, say, illustrating somebody else's book or creating their own books? Of it's all art? about collaboration and it's all about creating the artist and the writers coming together and creating something unique and amazing. And that's sort of what the whole the 20th century started this tradition really of an of these amazing um, you know artists and writers all coming together in Paris and hanging out you know as they do and um, so this is where all of this amazing avant-garde you know things like cubism and surrealism and all these things all these artists that came out of these traditions created these amazing books. Now the first artist that springs to mind for me when I think about artists as illustrators and mm. artists working with writers is. Uh, Aubrey Beardsley, oh, whose yeah. kind of luscious, beautiful, yes. evocative, decadent images uh, were both gloriously designed but also beautiful. Um, they oh. they contribute so much to the to the act of reading. Um, how important was Beardsley in terms of influencing successive artists? I'd say probably important. I mean, there are earlier people like Blake and... Um, um, Doré and people like that who... But they still were illustrating. I mean, the main thing about the, the things that we're looking at in this exhibition is that it was collaboration. So, um, the, so say, for instance, Jean Miro was responding to Tristan Zara's poems of the time. So, like, Zara wrote the poems when he was in a mental asylum. So, the poor man. But um, amazing poems. And then Miro, because they're friends, so then Miro responds to that in this abstract, you know, amazing sort of um, splashes across the page with the poetry there. So that's the difference. It's not an illustrated book per se. It's a collaboration of artist and writer coming together to create this new thing, really. And uh, given that you're the uh, the special collections librarian at the University yes. of Melbourne, I get the feeling you've got a, a wealth of these kind of <laughs> art books to choose from. Um, we do. It sort of started because really um, we've got a lot of – we've had Australian artist books for about 20 years and I've got to know a lot of those artists and in conversations and reading about what they say, it's all about – they've always talked about these European artists and I'm like, yes, yes, I'm going to go off and explore that. Um, so I did really um, and I love all those – the work of these European people and then I sort of gradually over the last sort of, I don't know, seven years have just bought a lot of these things you know, Amiro and Matisse, uh, you know, Ernst, um, Lizitsky. Um, so, and it's really so the collections, um, you've got an arc and you can tell a story because we do classes and things with students and it's important to be able to show the development. Um, and it really occurred to me that a lot of these Australian artists were European and really, you know, backgrounds and really influenced by that European tradition. So... So given that this is clearly a, uh, a now a well-established kind of 20th century and then into the yep. 21st century tradition, what are some of the, the more recent artists? Because quite a few of the names you've mentioned, Picasso, Matisse, yep, everyone uh, and, and knows. so everyone knows and yep. they're 
they're very much kind of early to mid 20th century yes, artists, yes, for example. Yes. How, who are the more recent uh, adherents to this, this practice? Um, look, in Australia, they didn't really take it up a lot um, at the time, which is really interesting, but it's typical Australia because it's always a bit behind in terms of abstract art. But um, but I think Peter Herrell is, um, he's sort of a linchpin in the exhibition and he sort of, he created something called the Graphic Investigation Workshop in Canberra in 1979. And that really sort of set the scene in a way for all these creative, amazing books. And now... Um, and it has taken, you know, I guess till now. And Melbourne is an amazing scene of a whole lot of artists like Peter Lisiotis, Theo Strasser, George Matulis, Angela Cavalieri. Um, Again, as you say, an Australian yes, artist of European extract of course. who inherited yes. that tradition, bought it with yes. them and transplanted Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And, um, sorry, Peter Herrell is Czechoslovakian and was in, working in Paris. So, you know, I mean, they all sort of come from that tradition. It sounds like... Uh, an exhibition that in some ways will frustrate the viewer because you want to pick up these books and read them and look oh, through well, them and, yes. <laughs> and, and, and uh, explore the interaction between text and imagery, for example. But somehow I suspect given these are rare books and valuable books, They're picking cases. them up and flipping through yeah, them, not, no, not so easy. No. So how do you choose which books, which particular page to display? Oh, well, and that and was... do you sneak back in at night and <laughs> kind of turn a couple of pages over to surprise people the next day? No. <laughs> Um, no, uh, look, it took a lot of work to work out which page and you sort of have to put things together that go together too. So one, if you choose one page opening in a case, then you need to sort of make sure the others fit with it. So there's that side of it. The nice thing about the European tradition is they don't bind. They didn't bind things. They just sort of had them as loose leaves in covers. So we've actually got a lot of stuff on the wall. So it's fantastic because I've managed to get so much out there um, on walls, so people will see heaps of stuff, um, and that's been really nice. So I've been able to put a lot on the walls and have a lot of things in cases. But I understand we do have a touch screen. We've gone a bit modern, um, and we've got the touch screen. You know, so you can flick through the pages digitally of some of the items, so that you know to alleviate that frustration. <laughs> Are you allowed to have favourites? Oh, well, uh, no, no, no. <laughs> you secretly do. Uh, mm, of course. What are some of the highlights for you, some of the, the, the most evocative works, for example, or the works that best typify that collaborative act between writer and artist? Well, the one that I said, there's Jean Miro and Tristan Zara. That's an amazing one. Um, and also I think the Elizitsky and Mayakovsky as well. Um, that's also a – that's also – that's Russian constructivist and it's sort of a bit outside the box in a way, but it's um, – the graphic design side of it is really important for that and that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, I think also the Australian people too. I think that's really important with the Australian side that a lot of those artists um, have collaborated together and have, you know, sort of come together and done all these amazing works. Who are some of the Australian writers they're collaborating with? Um well, Peter Lisiotis does writing as well. Um, Chris Wallace Crabb is another one. Um, in the exhibition, I'm just thinking who we've got. We've got... Um, is there a Paul Kelly? There is a Paul Kelly, and that's David Fraser, and his work's really beautiful. He's just, just all these woodcuts and liner cuts, and oh, my God, they're just beautiful. Um, so he's in there with that Paul Kelly. That's, um, that's beautiful. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRFM in Melbourne, Australia. 
the Melbourne International Film Festival is opening today. There's a, a plethora of work, international and national, to see. One of the films that's screening is the documentary Namajira Project, uh, created by a rather remarkable organisation called Big Heart, uh, who are art and social justice and social change all linked up together. Uh, joining us to talk about Namajira Project is its executive director, Julia Overton. Julia, welcome to Triple R. Thank you. So this film has grown out of a project which is has included a fantastic theatre production which reduced me not only to tears but to a sobbing mess in the theatre. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's also linked to uh, uh, a broader campaign to regain the copyright of Albert Namajira's paintings for his family. That's right. Uh, so it's a project that ha- works on multiple levels. How did you get involved? Well, my experience is mainly film um, and so I was asked by actually Sophia Marinos, the producer of the of the uh, film, but also the overarching producer of the whole Namajira, Namajira project, project um, to uh, come on board the project about three, three and a half years ago, um, because she Sophia had not had any film experience up to that point. So, and she wanted, you know, they desperately wanted to finish this wonderful film. And so I came on board to help them and, you know, add a sort of a film perspective to to the project. And also my own background is my, my partner in life is um, actually another filmmaker who's interested in social justice, Tom Zabriskie, who's also got a film screening in the festival this year, coincidentally. But so it, again... The philosophy of, of, of Big Heart has always been something very close to my heart. I also saw the play and Like You was reduced to a sobbing mess afterwards, so it seemed like a perfectly natural fit for me. Why is a film a significant and valuable part of this campaign? What can a film do that, for example, an article in a newspaper can't or a theatre production can't? Um, they're three completely different mediums, obviously. Um, I think the the... Play to me is as as a piece is always the most visceral and emotional, and because also the you know the performers will respond to the uh, the audience in a way that they can't because the film is a, a a finished piece of work. However, a film can reach a much much wider audience, and it can grow and expand on the on the on the audience of play i mean that it's a bit like I, you can't really com- you can't really compare them i mean i know it is a piece that and this is much more than the play it's partly the story of the play partly the story of albert and batterby and uh, trevor jamison's story and most importantly the namajira family's story now the namajira family have not earned a cent from uh Albert Namajira's uh, iconic painting since the 1980s. That's correct. Uh, and which is just part of an ongoing story of injustice. The fact that Albert uh, Namajira, as an Aboriginal artist, 
internationally renowned. Um, the Australian government made him a citizen just so they could tax his income. Uh, so kind of, uh, and that's just part of the story. Yes. And then the family lost the, the copyright to, to Albert's works. How and why did they lose the copyright to the works? Because the the income from those works would be of significant benefit to the to the broader Namajira family. Well, the in nineteen eighty three, I think it was the uh, out the uh, estate of Albert gave the rights to reproduce his work. So for things like tea towels and you know all those things that everybody had on their walls in those days. Um, so it was purely supposedly the reproduction of works, but it's, it's just grown into something that, you know, they don't get anything. And I, I honestly don't know why, and it's a really, really sad indictment on, yet again, on Australia, really, and the way we sort of don't look after the people we should be looking after. Yeah. One of the reasons it's so important to get to, to have this campaign to get the copyright back for the Namajira family is that the, the copyright will expire in 2029. That's right. So there's a, a limited window in which uh, the income stream from Albert Namajira's works can actually benefit the family. Yeah, and you know, and all his all his family have all become artists, uh, and they're very very talented, and they they don't benefit. I mean, they, you know, why shouldn't they benefit from their, their their family's uh, talents and, and you know skill, and it's just to me it's just a very very you know I mean to go from eighty three to you know the, in the twenty twenties is far too long a period for uh, and in the film they say it, you know you go from homeless in Aranda country you know from back Buckingham Palace to homeless in Aranda country and uh, that's really the irony of the whole thing, that he is such a fated man, uh, Albert, and all his, you know, everywhere you go, people remember him or they know about his work. And for me, as someone who studied art, I, I, as you can tell from my voice, I was partly brought up in other countries. And every other country, the, they know about Albert as well as here and, and, and his importance in the art world. And his gen, his family should be you know, benefiting from it, and and when it's it's not even that they're not benefiting, but they're actually living, you know, quite poorly. Yeah. Mm. Tell us about the story of making the film itself and the challenges that the the, the filmmakers faced uh, in getting the the film together. Um, I think for the filmmakers, the most important thing was that they understood it was a collaboration. And it was a collaboration with the Namatura family, and that even when the play was being performed, they would go and talk to the family to make sure that they were doing things in a culturally culturally appropriate manner. And they repeated this process all over again when they they worked with the film. And I know that for Trevor Jamison, for instance, a wonderful, wonderful actor, that it was very important for him and for me some of the most moving scenes in the, in the film are those where he is talking to the people from Hermansburg about ensuring that he was authentically representing the voice of the Namajira people and the, the, what they what their intention was and that was the reason really to make the film is to try and get this story the copyright story out not as a documentation of a play Mm. how can a film like this 
help the, the Namajira family uh, beyond just getting the message out? Is the, the intention that the more people know about this story, the more pressure can be brought to bear on restoring the copyright to the family? Exactly, exactly. And there is indeed a legacy trust that has been set up and this was launched in Canberra in March. And so... Um, I'll get the website details to you for that in a second and then we, we can tell you at the end uh, where people can actually uh, contact uh, if they feel like contributing something to this fund. And this is, you know, this is the purpose of the film, really. Now, you've been involved with documentary making for quite some time and I know that you've been on the board of the Australian International Documentary Conference, for example, mm-hmm. and you have a, a, a long history of filmmaking. Documentaries have used to be considered um, old-fashioned and tired. And over the last two decades or 15 years or so, uh, documentaries have become immensely popular, uh, crowd-pleasing box office smashes. Why is a good documentary such uh, a successful art form? Uh, well, it's a sort of rather loaded. I think all, I mean, if you, if you aspire to be the best in whatever art form it is, uh, I think you'll reach an audience. Um, my original background was in narrative storytelling, uh, and, um, I've always believed that you found, find the best way to tell the story rather than say, I'm going to make a documentary or I'm going to make a, a feature film. Um, and for me, uh, I think that it, documentary for a long time, people would, who are practitioners would start out by making what they would call only a documentary, but their real dream was to make a feature film. And now I think, partly through the advent of the extraordinarily much more mobile uh, equipment, for want of a better word, you know, and the ease of production. I think that has had a lot to do with it. I also think that people are always interested in true stories. Uh, There's something that uh, is there for them. Um, And, of course, you have the the great masters um, who... If you look at, say, and I'll use him as an example because, you know, I've worked with him in vendors, uh, I would suggest that his most recent, most accessible films have been documentary, whether it's Buena Vista Social Club, his film on Pina, or his most beautiful film on Salgado, Salt of the Earth, all of which were finalists and nominated for Oscars, for Academy Awards as Best Documentary. Um, You... And he chooses the form. It's like I said earlier, you choose the form for the story you want to tell. And um, I think the fact that many of those very, quote, successful and known filmmakers are choosing it as a form just says something as well. Yeah. Namajira Project is a story that has had multiple incarnations. Yes. Uh, as we've said, uh, there's been exhibitions, there's been the stage play which has toured the country and now we have this documentary film. Uh, the benefit, I suspect, of making the documentary at the end of this, towards the end of Namajira Project is not only can it then tell the story of everything that has come before, but it can hone and focus the message as well. Yes, it can and I think that's what we hope to do. But what I, I would say that... 
you can still, we still have the, the three. And in fact, there's a fourth element that often goes with either the, uh, the, um, the play or, or can go with the film is the Namajira family will come and they will do watercolor classes, you know, so there is in one of the lovely scenes in the film is them doing one of these water classes in London, uh, to a, a you know, uh, and, and in Tasmania as well. I think there are a couple of wonderful scenes where you can see a somewhat, you know, if I have to do this again, but I'll do it, and they do it, and it's a beautiful beautiful evocation of the, the, there's, you know, and not only are there a watercolour uh, classes, but there, is, there, there, there are exhibitions. So it, it is, in a true way, a um, multi-layered experience this then that's what's great about an organization like big heart is that they they have the facility to do that because they've got those networks all around the country so they can lob into launceston or into i don't know alice springs and they've got all these facilities at their disposal and so you do get an, a chance as you asked me at the beginning you know a play is a play better than a film is better than a painting whatever i mean it's whatever turns anyone's partic- presses anyone's particular buttons is what you know so you can get everything in this <laughs> this has been a podcast from free triple r 102.7 fm in melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website at rrr.org.au